Uh, just firstly, let's acknowledge the Ghana people, the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains. And we pay respects to elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. So let me introduce um, this eminent panel here, Marianne Wilkinson, investigative journalist, and <laughs> done a lot of work with, uh, with Four Corners, and uh, we were previously uh, colleagues uh, many years ago at uh, the Sydney Morning Herald in Fairfax, back in the day. Uh, she is the author of Carbon Club, uh, which is a fantastic read on the history of climate denying uh, in Australia and the fight against science. Um, you'll be able to get the book, all, all of the author's books, in fact, over in the tent um, afterwards. Richard Dennis, the Chief Economist in the middle here. Chief Economist with the Australia Institute, the progressive, um, I, thought, I suppose, think tank. Do we call it a think tank, uh, Richard? Uh, he's done some terrific uh, work, and he is a, a something of a slayer of rent seekers. Uh, he, when we were discussing our expertise in rent seeking, because uh, it's all about corruption today and the and the nexus between big business and politics, uh, Cameron Murray, our final uh, speaker, if you give him a round of applause, he <laughs> he's uh, he's the author of Game of Mates, which is a beautiful title, uh, you know, redolent of of what really does go on. Uh, at the big end of town, the game of mates. Um, his most recent stuff, which I published on uh, michaelwest.com.au, the website, independent website, which, which I uh, operate, uh, he did some excellent work on rent seeking in the property uh, sector. So we've got resources, we've got property, and we've got just any other <laughs> and all sectors um, uh, to, be, to be covered here. Now, First of all, just let me say, uh, a year or so ago, and if we could engage Marianne Wilkinson on this one, um, I did a study for Greenpeace, I did a report for Greenpeace, and we got a, a Parliament House list of, um, of uh, phone numbers and email addresses from somebody, and uh, <laughs> we found of, uh, about the 30 people in PMO, or the Prime Minister and Cabinet Office, uh, we found that there were resources and cold lobby links to around 10 or 11 of them. Um, literally executive directors of the Minerals Council, which is the coal peak body. John Kunkel, he's one of them. There's another guy that's gone there since. Two or three people uh, in the Prime Minister's office, his closest advisors, his chief of staff from the coal lobby, directly, straight from the Minerals Lobby. Uh, his principal private secretary, uh, Jeroen Finkelstein, has been in the news a bit recently. He uh, is ex-Cosby Texter, uh, Glen, who count uh, Glencore, a lobby firm which count Glencore as one of their clients. So strong coal lobby connections there, Cosby Texter. And then there were about four or five people from News Limited, um, you know, speech writers and press secretaries and so on, giving media advice. And of course, we know the history of News Limited and its approach to um, uh, favouring the resources lobby over the science lobby. Um, and so this was extraordinary, you know, to have almost a dozen people uh, with coal lobby connections 
advising the Prime Minister of the country. So what I'd just like to ask Marianne to kick off is, could you give us a bit of a, an idea about the power um, of the resources lobby and where you think it's going to go and how we can mitigate that and stop dragging the global chain on uh, carbon emissions? Well, of course, Michael, you're absolutely right. We, the resources lobby, and particularly the coal and gas lobbies, have been hugely influential in the climate policy in Australia for the last 25 years. And it, that influence has, I don't think, ceased. You only have to look at the most recent uh, position of the Prime Minister post-COVID on pushing a gas-led recovery as our response to the COVID crisis to see that the fossil fuel industry still holds enormous sway over the government and, frankly, over the opposition through some of the large unions. What we do about it is really, I think, important because apart from pushing particular policies, the most important thing it's done, of course, is push out other policies. It's pushed back on Australia's transition to a clean energy economy. It's thwarted other industries and uh, other investment that could have made a very big change. And I guess one of the big lessons I got from the research from the book was not only the obvious about the influence of the lobby, and there's a lot about it in the book. But when you go back and you look at some of the internal discussions of their meetings with politicians, which I went through and was able to get hold of some of them, is the incredible paucity of thinking in those meetings and the paucity of thinking which just did not ever envisage that their industries would be on the decline. And when you look at that in 2021, you think what really, how big a failure was that? Because in that room were senior politicians, prime ministers, public servants, senior public servants with those industry people believing what they said mm -hmm. about the projections of the future. And I think when you say, how do we change it? We change that thinking, that thinking that the status quo for, of the last 25 years is in any way a realistic future for Australia. Uh, Richard, would you say there's any plan for the post-carbon economy for transitioning <laughs> communities across Australia out of coal mining and so on, which is inevitable. What, what, what's the government and, indeed, what's Labor's plan for oh, this Michael. transition? Um, it's so much worse than that. Um, <laughs> now, let, let's be clear. In Australia today, we are not transitioning away from anything. We are transitioning towards the fossil fuel sector. OK? Australia doubled its coal exports in the last 10 years and we are planning more. In the five years leading up to the Paris uh, COP, we spent $80 billion to build gas export facilities. We're now a larger gas exporter than Qatar. Like, <laughs> there is no transition away from fossil fuels. 
we are in the middle of our largest ever transition towards fossil fuels. Now, that doesn't mean we're not building solar panels, great, wind turbines, great, supplying ourselves with more renewables here in South Australia, great. You're almost as good as we are in Canberra. Keep up the good work, <laughs> all right? We've been 100% renewable for a few years now. You're welcome. But Australia has a bigger share of the world coal market than Saudi Arabia has in oil. We're the biggest exporter of LNG in the world. But these markets are going to disappear, yeah. whether the government likes it or not. So Absolutely. We, are, we are facing a cliff there for Yeah, we? we're playing endgame, mm. right? And we're just going to cause as much climate change as we can and make as much money for the handful of people mm. who own it as we mm. can, and then we're all going to look surprised. But just if you believe we're transitioning away from coal, you're wrong. We're opening up coal in the Galilee in North Queensland, where never in the history of ever have we mined coal. So it's nice to ask how we're going to help the people of the Hunter transition out of coal. <laughs> we're opening up an entire new coal basin to transition people into coal. Now, I'm not saying this is a good idea, but unless we call it out for what it is, we're, we're going to miss the problem. Now, we're going to talk about corruption and things today, I'm sure, but... There's two versions of corruption. There's the brown paper bag corruption, which is bad, but our policy processes, our bureaucracies are so corrupted, and I don't mean got a handful of cash corruption. I mean, they're so corrupted that when things like I just described get pointed out, we've got a whole bureaucracy that says, oh, that's not actually happening. <laughs> so let me just give you a quick example. Back in 2014, Myself and my colleagues at the Australia Institute were trying to stop the expansion of a coal mine in the Hunter Valley, the Walkworth mine. New South Wales has never said no to a coal mine. Ever. Anyway, this coal mine was going to create 44,000 jobs and it was so important it was going to create 44,000 jobs in the Hunter Valley. I grew up in the Hunter Valley. There's only half a million people there. Right? So 10% of the Hunter Valley was going to work at this mine. And it had sailed through all the approval processes. And there's a hint there. They're called approval processes. <laughs> now, you see, it's corrupted, right? Because they're always going to get approved. You just have to go through a process. So this mine had gone through an approval process where it had convinced everyone it was going to create 44,000 jobs in the Hunter Valley where only half a million people live. And we looked at the numbers and said, well, we think the estimate of job creation is zero. And we won. We won. Oh, don't clap yet. <laughs> and, and, and approval for the mine was stopped by the courts after the bureaucrats had waved it through. So they appealed and we won. Don't clap yet. <laughs> then the, the global head of coal from Rio Tinto, who of course lives in London, where there's a lot of coal, flew from London to Australia, met the New South Wales Premier, they changed the law and that mine's going ahead. Yeah, right? So even, like, that was the first time anyone had ever stopped a coal mine. So we just changed the laws and we're going to build it. It's worse than brown paper bags, I assure you. We are transitioning into fossil fuels at a very dumb time to do it, mm. but there's still a lot of money to be made in the short term. Excellent. Very worrying appraisal. And no <laughs> doubt we're going to get back to resources because this is the sector which Australia is famous for globally. Uh, it's st staying on our on our reputation, unfortunately, across the world. Um, 
But the biggest market, of course, isn't resources. The biggest market in Australia, if we can introduce Cameron, Cameron Murray here, is uh, the property market. Cameron, could you yeah. give us some idea? Cameron did some excellent work, by the way, on, on the difference between what the lobby groups are saying about property, uh, how there's a supply problem, and then going to the actual annual reports, which is statutory documents where you're supposed to tell the truth. Uh, and he's gone to the annual reports of you know, Mervac and Lend Lease and all the big developers and just found it's a complete myth. So he does some good stuff exploding um, myths. Could you tell us the greatest motivator, in your view, is it political donations uh, that consolidates power or is, mm. it, is it personal relationships and networks? Yeah, it's 100% relationships and networks, uh, for sure. I actually started my research with a very naive view that um, I could do uh, something really interesting and, and show how political donations correlated with political favours in land rezoning. And I just about gave up because I couldn't find anything there. So, you know, it's puzzling because I, I know it's corrupt because I've worked in that sector before. So. Uh, I, I kept digging, and so I, I got information on all the lobbyists. I scraped a database of um, biographies of politicians in Queensland. Um, I got all the annual reports and cross-directorships of the, the companies that own land, and I created a, a sort of political corporate network of relationships. Once I had that, it was very easy. You could predict with... Um, almost precise accurate accuracy which landowners got rezoned and which didn't from how well connected they were in that network, how well connected they were and their friends were in that network. Um, and, and just the cases I looked at in Queensland, uh, those connected landowners gained around $410 million worth of additional property rights through that rezoning. So, so these uh, relationships, they pay off. They really do. They pay off in a big way. Um, and so, so the way I see donations now is, is less of a trade for a favour, a, a, a bribe. We call them sort of um, petty bribes. They're really about signalling your loyalty. I want to join the club. I've, I often call them the facial tattoo of the political mafia. <laughs> you need to be seen by others to be committed to the game. You have to, you have to do something costly to commit. So a, few, a couple of hundred grand here, 50 grand there, whatever, that gets you in the club. And then when you're in the club, that's where the real high value favors get traded. And that's where those relationships are highly valuable. Indeed. Um, Marianne, could you uh, expand upon that with a view to resources? And, and the fact, of course, that we, we demonize, rightfully demonize the coalition for being uh, they're not all climate deniers, but, but for being certainly the right of the coalition for, you know, being anti-science and so on. But in fact, uh, and with the gas policy, the gas recovery, in fact, Labor was ahead of the curve, weren't they, uh, on gas uh, compared to the coalition. So Yeah, I think that exactly as Cameron said, the, it's not just the political donations. You can chase the individual donations, and I'm sure we've all done that, that on this podium, but it is those integrated political relationships that really make the difference. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. The, Queensland is the classic example. I think you only have to look at two things in gas, 
the development of Curtis Island, the big LNG plants there where Labor really went out on a limb. And I still believe to some extent that Labor and the Gillard government were trying to, if you like, persuade Australia that it was still in the game on the resources industry, even though they were pursuing a carbon price, that there was so much enthusiasm around the LNG developments at Curtis Island. You had Martin Ferguson, the resources minister, went into bat uh, for British Gas, which was then run by Kath Tanner. Kath Tanner, in turn, was put on the Reserve Bank board. It, all these relationships went round and round. Uh, Labor on that side, and then paralleling it, you saw, as Richard mentioned before, the opening up of the Galilee Basin, some of the biggest coal reserves in the Southern Hemisphere, which became the battle royal really, of climate change, ground zero, I call it in the book, on climate change. And what was fascinating there was that Gina Reinhart, uh, then better known for her iron ore industry um, links, and Clive Palmer, they became really the flag bearers of the Galilee. And there was a deep irony in this, neither of them actually were going to develop a mine. They were all about getting the approvals, getting the approvals, and that meant persuading the politicians, mm -hmm. persuading the bureaucrats, and that's why they were so important. They were the ones who really opened up the Galilee and then the Adanis and their lobbyists and everyone came in behind them. And the enormous bun fight that happened between uh, the LMP and Clive Palmer was all about the fact that he missed out on the approvals mm -hmm. that Gina and Adani managed to get. But that's exactly where you see those personal relationships because those industries, they need those personal relationships to push those approvals through. So what do we do about it, Richard? <laughs> um, well, we call it out because, you know, actually what we do at the moment is we, we all, not you, but the person sitting next to you is the one I'm worried about, you know, we... <laughs> We kind of politely pretend that we live in a country of laws and we politely pretend that, 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 that all this, well, there might be a little bit of rough and tumble around the edges, but big picture, everything's all right. It's not all right. Like, we're so far from all right. Um, the, the most profitable things you can do in Australia are go into property or go into mining or go into banking. All of these are the most highly regulated industries in the country. So there's a hint here, right? The way to make as much money as possible is to enter an industry where regulatory favour determines how profitable you are. And if you're not going into those industries, then you're a sucker because you're going to wind up competing with other people. <laughs> Imagine that. And if you try and charge too much, then someone else will set up and put downward pressure on price or point out that your product's crap. Imagine getting caught up in the grind of actual capitalism <laughs> when you can enter yeah. either in a small way as a property developer, a big way as a bank or a medium-sized way as a resource company, you know, you can just get your hands on the mother load. And 
it's really simple once you realise that, as Miriam just said, like with mining, with property, it's about the discretionary act of rezoning, mm. right? It's like this magic. One day you own a dairy farm and the next day you own residential land on the outskirts of a city and it just went up 50 times in value. As luck would have it, some lucky guy, and it usually is a guy, but some lucky person just was there the day that the magic happened. And once you realise that that's all Gina was doing up in the Galilee, what they're doing is betting. They're betting that their unique skill, the thing they can bring to the process, is the yes. Not the ability to build a mine. That gets contracted out. Now, that's busy work. The magic, the wealth, we call it wealth, it's theft, comes from getting the yes. Mm. And whether it's property or whether it's a coal mine or whether it's a bank licence or a TV licence, just look at the rich list. Mm. They're in an industry where I can't compete with them Mm -hmm. because the regulator stops it. That's Australia, one of the richest countries in the world and you all get ripped off paying too much for everything because we can't have competition where it counts. Well, we've just yeah. seen Rupert Murdoch do it in media, uh, inveigle the government into gouging a bit yeah. of cash out of Google. Mm-hmm. So no reform for Google or Facebook, just a little bit of cash, passes hands to the government's favourite media mates. Yep. Small operators like myself pay full amount of tax. Rupert has paid... Rupert pays no tax, so they will be paying for these digital media reforms... And that is a classic case in this industry, an industry where people are competing in an independent media sense, and then mm. suddenly the government goes and grabs this money out of Google, flicks it over to Rupert Murdoch, doesn't pay any tax, and um, it's just like a, little, a lovely little subsidy. Yeah. Can I pick up on a bit of what both of you have said? Uh, Marion, you sort of mentioned that both sides of politics are, are playing the same game. And, and Richard, you said, you know, what happened to the ca- capitalism, the, the rough and tumble, the competing for uh, customers, the innovating with better products? Um, why, don't, why don't we have a situation where that's how you get rich? And I, so there's, there's, there's two things I, I would bring up. On, on the both sides of politics, in a lot of these big regulated sectors that Richard's talking about, um, yeah, both sides really are um, on the same side. We can see that in the donations data. So... 60% of donations in Australia, political donations by value, come from donors who donate to both sides equally. They split their donations 50-50. So the question is, well, what are those donations doing if you're, you're not trying to get you know, your person elected because you're giving an equal advantage to their, um, their comp- political competitor as well? So, so there's real no advantage to the political party from that donation if you're donating to your competitors. So what are these uh, majority of donors actually doing? And they're, and they're buying into this club where both sides are on the same team. And I think in, in many areas of policy, that's the case. And, and to pick up again on that uh, capitalism idea, I think we have this myth-making that's been going on. And, and if you read Game of Mates, you'll see that myth-making is one of the ingredients to keep the game going. You need a plausible story that you repeat to the public so that you, when you're challenged, well, why did my land get rezoned and it was worth $5 million, now it's worth 50 Well, you have to say, oh, well, we need affordable housing. You know, if you don't rezone me, no, nothing's going to get built. 
um, you need these these myths and and uh, we, we often think that the coalition is much more into capitalism than maybe the Labor Party, but you can see when it comes to the crunch, they're happy to intervene and use their heavy hand. Hang on a minute. They're coming for you, mate. They, they tracked me down. Holy cow. That's a loud chopper. Sorry, mate, go on. <laughs> Where were we? Uh, you, both sides of politics are equally happy to intervene in markets and regulate the way they want and subsidise the way they want for their mates. There is no real fundamental difference, I think, on principle about capitalism and competition and how the economy operates. I think both sides heavily agree that we should uh, give subsidies to people we like, we, sh we should uh, protect the monopolies of people we like, and we should do the opposite for people we don't like. Marianne? Well, <laughs> I, I certainly agree with some of that. I think we only <laughs> have to uh, look at the current state of the Crown Casino debate to see where that has been writ large, whether it was a Liberal government, whether it was in New South Wales, a Labor government in mm. Victoria, Liberal or Labor in mm. WA. Uh, here was the case of a highly regulated industry, supposedly, that was clearly involved with money laundering, associations with organised crime. It had been exposed again and again in the media. Nothing had happened uh, until, you know, they hit a crisis. And now everyone's ducking for cover. And that was a case where, again, the myth-making, I think you're right, was really, really important. It was all about jobs. And somehow we get into the, this position is that you can't raise legitimate issues, whether it's environmental pollution, climate change, or, in fact, a, a company being infiltrated by organised crime, uh, if you're going to jeopardise these amounts of jobs, if you're going to jeopardise this industry, if you're going to jeopardise shareholder value. And I think this comes to another absolute um, bugbear of mine, which is the lack of regulation over the lobbying industry in this country. We are at a dire, dire stage with this. And I've talked to lobbyists at length who are involved in these processes. But I think, you know, when, whether you look at Crown Casino, whether you look at some of the big mining companies, not only, as Michael pointed out well before, the lobbyists are now just on this revolving door going in between uh, <coughs> major companies and the government. But I think what's far more insidious at the moment is that the political parties themselves are allowing lobbyists in to run their political campaigns. Now, on the surface, that's not a great thing. But as one of the lobbyists explained to me, where it gets really insidu insidious is that when you have these lobbyists inside your political campaign, it means that they know every candidate's background, mm. his marital problems, mm. her marital problems, whether they have a child with a disability that needs help, whether that it's, again, these personal relationships they have all this information. 
and then when they go back to their companies, they it's these people they cultivate and they want them to sit on the parliamentary committees. Okay, we'll get this person, you know, on the environment committee. We'll get this person on the health committee. They'll be helpful here, helpful there. All of this is going unregulated at the moment. And I think that, uh, you know, we talk a lot about regulating political donations, but you need to get right down into the nitty-gritty of these kind of personal relationships with the Crosby texters uh, and mm -hmm. with the other big lobby companies and really take this apart. Richard? Yeah, look, absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and let's be clear, like, this is what other countries do or did or never had it. Like, we are uniquely crap. Okay? <laughs> no, no, because, like, the internet exists, but we don't see the rest of the world. So, in Australia, uh, we know that when the department writes a brief to Cabinet, it's Cabinet in confidence and it's locked away for 20 years, and, and if you couldn't do that, then we couldn't have frank and fearless advice. What bullshit? It's just absolute rubbish. Has anyone here heard of um, New Zealand? <laughs> What happens in New Zealand is that 10 days after their cabinet makes a decision on something, all the cabinet documents are released. <gasps> Have you heard of this place? N-E-W-Z-E-A-L. Right, it's not far away. The internet's there. All right, and what happens, and I, I've been teaching public servants about economics forever, and you, you talk about all this stuff, and Australian public servants, oh, yes, you, you have to have top secret, top secret, or we could never give such shit advice. <laughs> right, so the secrecy helps hide the advice. The process is corrupted. Not just the person, there are corrupt people. The process is corrupted. Now, what the average New Zealand public servant who sits in the same course, and I always know they're there, and I wait until all the Australians make fools of themselves, and then I say, is anyone here from New Zealand? Put your hands up. How's it work at your place? Oh, well, we put it all out after 10 days. <gasps> so well, how do you give frank and fearless advice? They say, well, we have to, because if I write a crap brief that glosses over problems or hands, you know, suggests that the minister's best mate should get the gig, 10 days after I write the brief, any journalist any researcher who wants to go and read the brief can start saying, if this is what Cabinet made its decision on, mm -hmm. for God's sake, who wrote this? Who's that moron? So other countries know how to fix these problems. Indeed, arguably, most of them have never had them. So, you know, and back to the, the cover story that Cameron was talking about before, you know, I just say, in Australia, in a democracy, power is the ability to talk bullshit and get away with it. So when the mining industry says, we create a million jobs, <laughs> it's like, well, ABS says it's like 50,000. Oh, well, it must be somewhere in the middle there. Well, they have independent experts reports, they of course. They have independent so. experts. So, so when they... <laughs> so, lobbyists. <laughs> so when we want to get a casino justified, we say it'll create jobs. When we want to create a mine, we say it'll create jobs. When we want to get a property, oh, it'll create jobs and yep. cheaper prices. So we just lie all the time, right? And, and at the Australia Institute, we did some research a few years ago on what percentage of the population, on average, mm. what people thought, how many people worked in mining. The average Australian thinks 10% of people work in mining. It's closer to one. The average Tasmanian thinks 20% of people work in forestry. It's closer to one. But if you read the paper every day, 
It's not the people that are dumb. If you read the paper every day and every day you saw things about mining, 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 forestry, forestry, you might have drawn the impression these were important industries. Anglicare and Uniting Care, heard of them? They employ more people than the coal mining industry in Australia. <laughs> well, I hope you're clapping them, not me. Right. Yeah. Right, McDonald's employs more people than the coal mining industry. This is not top secret, but if I say that on the ABC, some poor producer gets a head ripped off, all right, there'll be a writer reply mm -hmm. the next day from the Minerals Council, and you'll hear he said, she said, and by the way, it was Christian Porter. Okay? <laughs> no, it was. And, and, and here, sorry, I got a text, he said it, so I'm not defaming him now. All right, it was Christian Porter that the allegations are about, and everyone in Canberra's known about that since at least November. Everyone's known since at least November. He, he very much knew the girl. But everyone's known, but guess what? We didn't tell you. Because that's how it works. So you're saying there's Australia. a problem with the media as well, with the messengers then? Is that a concentration Same. issue? Well, I mean, think about Morrison's banged on about the Canberra bubble for the last year. Mm. He's desperately hiding in the Canberra bubble mm. right mm. now. Mm. And he's told us that inside the Canberra bubble, there's the Prime Minister's bubble, mm. where he doesn't even know what's happening mm. in Canberra. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I also note, uh, Richard, that uh, the the, um, the robo debt uh, was particularly vicious enforcement and often wrongly so. But the job keeper money that's gone out to corporations, not their employees, but to the corporations, giving them time to restructure, um, there is no list. There is no list. We don't know. We don't know whether News Corporation, for instance, I suspect they are. I've asked them personally, and I got a no comment. Um, whether they got job uh, JobKeeper. We don't know who's got it. We know that they haven't met the publicly stipulated thresholds of 50% revenue decline, these big companies. So the rorting of JobKeeper has been ubiquitous and there has been no, uh, there's been no register. The government's not saying who it's giving our money to, the public's money to. So just that's just another... goes further to your point about transparency. So just... just Theoretically, if we make everything radically transparent, mm. does that solve all the corruption problems? Oh, it helps enormously. Um, and, look, our culture is corrupted. Like, we've got public servants that have gone through their whole career in this environment, mm. having never said no to a coal mine. Right? Read the Royal Commission. Read, just read the summary of the Royal Commission into aged care. Like, the regulator didn't want to upset the regulated. Yeah. Okay? They, there was never a surprise inspection. Once. Right? Because that would have created mistrust. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Right? There's a whole idea around governance that, that the regulator and, and, and the regulated are in some sort of partnership where together they're trying to... I'm not making this shit up. Learn and help each other all day long. This is not how we treat an unemployed person. Yeah. Unemployed person better not get their form in late. Yeah. But, but an aged care provider who, or someone on the NDIS is literally caring for someone with their lives in their hands. And we know we killed them. Right? We know people are dying from malnutrition and neglect. We've got a regulator, and worse than that, a whole class of regulators who kind of think that establishing yeah. trust 
and, and working constructively with the person who oversaw the death of someone is, is responsive. I don't even know what this word means. Reflexive, mm. right? But it's a thing, all right? So our regulators are brutal on the unemployed. We know how to be nasty. Look how we'll treat a disabled person who's unemployed. Look how we'll treat a asylum seeker. We know how to be tough. But not if you owe a couple of hundred million in tax. We'll let you settle for cents in the dollar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And transparency, Cameron, is that the answer to everything? You've got a slightly different opinion. I have a different take, but uh, that's... (laughs) I'm going to just second... (laughs) I'm just going to just say... Richard's not just telling stories. I used to work for a regulator in Queensland. <laughs> and uh, the guy I sat next, with, next, to, next to on Friday, I had to call him on Monday when he was a, a lobbyist for the industry we were regulating. <laughs> so it's, the revolving door is, is spinning like crazy. And, yeah, the, the philosophy of holding hands with the regulated is, is not helpful. And if you took that approach, for example, to policing the mafia... You'd get nowhere. And yet, you know, that's roughly speaking what we're trying to do. We're trying to stop um, these organised companies, organisations, from stealing billions from the rest of us through their, their power over resources. And, uh, and we just choose, choose not to do it. And I don't know why we still have that philosophy. I don't know why we can't take them to court. I don't know why when we actually try to regulate, we spend... I think we spent $100 million enforcing uh, some interna- international um, tax avoidance laws and got a billion dollars worth of tax back. Well, that's a 10 to 1 payoff. We should just keep going, right, and keep spending more, keep enforcing the laws we have if that's the type of payoff you get. And, and, and the political motivation is just not there. On the transparency, I, I do worry because I think you're relying a lot when you change rules and require transparency on some kind of embarrassment or shame mechanism. If there's no law to stop something and you just make it transparent, um, you know, whether the minister got some dodgy advice, whether a lobbyist met with a minister or whether someone donated last week, if that's legal but you can see it, they just say, well, yeah, that's the way we do it. And in many cases what we do is we, we legitimise a, a flawed process through transparency. So... Uh, you know, we've got real-time donations disclosure in Queensland and everyone thought that's terrific. But I can tell you who donates because it's the same insiders every year who donate roughly the same to both parties every single year. So knowing about that six months in advance of when we used to know about it doesn't really change a lot. It legitimises donations. It makes it look like it's well-regulated. <coughs> but, you know, if, if you had to accept a donation in a brown paper bag and there were no other laws surrounding that... I think people would be a little more uh, worried about what sort of legal recourse there might be, but now we've sort of legitimised it. You just get your brown paper bag and if you issue a receipt and say it's a donation and this actually happened in a, in a corruption hearing I was an expert witness at, then that's totally fine. You just issue the receipt. So in many ways you've legitimised this activity we didn't want to legitimise. And so uh, the same sort of thing might happen with disclosing uh, diaries of ministers. When they meet with lobbyists, the minister can then say, of course I've met with representatives from that industry, I'm doing my job, I'm meant to meet with them. The lobbyists can turn around and say, 
I'm worth every penny because I'm the only guy that gets a meeting every fortnight with the minister. Check out his diaries that now everybody can see. So you've almost legitimised this process that we didn't really want operating in the first place. So I, I, I like transparency, but I like when it's paired up with uh, rules uh, that make it difficult to give out favours so we can actually use that transparency to enforce some kind of um, control on behaviour. Uh, and I think if we just pursue the transparency and think, great, our job's done, donations are disclosed, I think you're going to get all the same political decisions you got previously. You've got to go a little bit further than that. Marianne. Yeah, and if I could add to that, I think fundamentally you come back down to this thing about where are the enforceable penalties for bad, corrupt behaviour. And again, I come back to the recent case of Crown Casino. We're finally now, because of a, a crescendo of reporting that broke uh, the dam on Crown Casino, we're finally getting an Austrac investigation. We're finally getting an AFP investigation into money laundering at the casinos. For some time before I was doing environment, I did the terrorism round at the Sydney Morning Herald. I cannot tell you how many cases I tracked of small Pakistani or Bangladeshi money launderers in the western suburbs of Sydney getting busted, raided, etc by the AFP and the press releases would come out and all the video of hauling in, you know, uh, some 50-year-old guy who'd taken a couple of hundred thousand bucks and sent it to the Middle East. The fact that we never do that with a company like Crown Casino says everything. There was a fantastic book that came out after the GFC in America called The Chicken Shit Club. Mm. And what it was about was the fact that the US Justice Department had basically lost its will to prosecute and jail leading white-collar criminals, rich white-collar criminals. That is exactly what has happened in Australia. And I think until we reverse this, until we say that if you are doing serious money laundering as a major corporation, if you are doing serious criminal tax avoidance, you go to jail and we have competent people who can prosecute you, it won't change. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, I just noticed I haven't been down to beautiful Adelaide for a little while and I noticed they've got a lovely casino up... Uh, up the top of the hill here. Uh, that's a marvellous place where you, where you can do some money laundering now, I guess. <laughs> Superb. Um, so we might throw it open to questions in a sec, but just, just on the subject, I guess, there's a lot of talk about an anti-corruption commission and, of course, one Christian Porter had come up with a suggestion. I'm not sure how far it got, but he was going to have it apparently in camera so nobody could see it. They were going to have secret... They're going to have secret inquiries. I think there were all sorts of the vetting processes that looked like it had to be a recommendation perhaps from him himself or something like this. It was the most ridiculous proposal ever. Labor has sort of tepidly backed a proposal from the Greens, but of course nobody really seems to want one. Um, just quickly, everybody, do you think... Uh, it would answer a lot of the problems. Going to this point of accountability, because if people are accountable and they know they will be prosecuted, 
independently, then surely that should act as a signal for corrupt behaviour. Marianne, do you...? Well, I certainly back an open, transparent ICAC with serious powers, but I would say, after the experience in New South Wales, what is vital is that you get a separate prosecute um, DPP, a section within the state or federal DPP that is resourced to take the cases. I think the problem we've seen in New South Wales is the more successful ICAC was, the more it came under pressure from both sides of politics, its funding has been stripped, its investigation uh, powers have been stripped, and I think uh, the uh, response from the prosecution, uh, the DPP, has been relatively weak compared to the cases that have come before it. So, yes, all in favour of it, but, you know, fund it and put structures around it that actually uh, make prosecutions possible. Richard, what would be your ideal model? Um, so the Australia Institute, where I work, we've done a lot of work on uh, corruption watchdog for many years because there are lots of lessons. Now we've got a corruption watchdog in every state and territory except the nation's national parliament. The only place there's no corruption in Australia <laughs> is federal politics. It's, it's endemic in local government. Every state government's accepted the premise, but the pristine mountain air of Canberra is such that you should all relax. Um, so, look, we've done a lot of research into that, including, you know, how, how to design it. And you, I think you have to have public hearings. You have to have public hearings. You have to have uh, a low bar for initiating proceedings. So the, the, the Christian Porter model, the let's keep it to ourselves model, we'll call it, um, uh, has proposed that, that, that a watchdog wouldn't initiate proceedings unless there's evidence of criminal mm -hmm. conduct. And that's way too high. You, mm -hmm. you know, you, to have a prima facie case of criminal conduct, you almost don't need a corruption watchdog. You can go to the police. Mm -hmm. So often corruption investigations are started at the state level where there is corrupted process or hints of civil breaches of laws or you name it. And then they pull on the string and they see what they find. But to suggest that you can't start proceedings without prima, prima facie evidence of a criminal uh, activity is, is way too high a bar. It needs to be well funded. Um, but again, so I actually think it's very important. What you want to do is strike terror into the mid-level public servants who are turning a blind eye in a corrupted process. Yep. Right? Because to some extent you need to empower them to be able to say to their boss... Yeah, I reckon you should sign that one, boss. No, I mean this because, you know, there is a federal corruption watchdog and I don't really think that we went through the steps we went through. Mm. And at the moment, this is why they fight so hard on your FOI requests, right? This is why they want cabinet documents locked away for 30 years, right? Because if you can make the getaway 30 years long... We're never going to catch them. So we need to have that corruption watchdog. It's not the be-all and end-all, but for one of the world's richest economies to think we can't spend a couple of hundred million bucks on this, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, if it found no evidence of any corruption, what a, what, what a cheap investment that would be. I'm a little bit more optimistic <laughs> of its inquisitorial powers. No, but seriously, as a nation-state... Why not remove the embarrassment of its absence? And if it doesn't find anything, well, we can pretend to feel good about ourselves. Yeah. No, I, 
I've been peripherally involved with those uh, re discussions and research with Richard as well. And I, that, that low bar for investigation is really important. I was involved in a case in Queensland with the Triple C and, and the community group trying to bring this case and, and raise it with the Triple C just about had to do everything themselves before they had enough evidence for the Triple C to start looking into it. And you can't really rely on you know, people self-organising to act like police and spies in their community to, to expose corruption. I think in terms of the design, I fully support uh, an independent corruption commission federally. I think there's two, two more aspects. One is you need laws about um, how, how decisions are made or, or what processes are, processes are required that almost tie the hands of government in many ways or tie the hands of decision makers so that they aren't at the end of the day allowed to use their discretion because they can always back out of that clause like, and then you use your judgment to decide what's in the best interest. You've got to tie their hands in some way so that to skirt that process, you have to commit a corrupt act and then there's something to investigate. Um, so, for example, disposing of government property, you're required to do it in particular ways. You can't just give it to your mates. If I want to sell off a piece of land from a particular department, there's a process you're required. But to rezone land that might, that rezoning's worth 10 million, just the same as that site uh, that we're selling, uh, you know, you don't have to sell it. You don't have to go through a process of selling it. You can just use your discretion uh, to rezone and say, I'm doing it in the best interest because, you know, we need more housing. So you need those, those rules. And I think secondly in, in the design, an ideal design involves rotating people into this uh, corruption body who aren't involved in the local network, the local political network, and don't have careers where future employment prospects for them and their family rely on them going soft. So if you could uh, have a sort of international system with various law societies or whatever to rope in really good prosecutors internationally, pay them a lot of money to come and do their three or five years, uh, make it a very prestigious thing for them to come and catch uh, dodgy politicians and, and, and rent seekers in Australia and then send them home and we do vice versa, then I think you immediately, um, you immediately make a break on that rent-seeking, that social network and that embeddedness. They can bring their own half a dozen best staff with them, yeah, and we rotate them around. And, and you know, that you want them to sell themselves on their reputation as a tough guy, not their reputation on being soft so me and all my family can get cushy jobs after my time in the Corruption Commission's finished. It's a very, very, very interesting model. Uh, we might throw it open to questions uh, now. Uh, it's ten minutes to go, so there's a just one uh, microphone over here, gentleman here. Hi. Uh, <clears throat> since the Tampa, the uh, government has spent something like nine billion dollars on on uh, treating our refugees. I saw that there was four hundred million went to Paladin, who've got an office on Kangaroo Island, and I, <clears throat> the only office then. And uh, on the Australia Day weekend, uh, Peter Dutton announced $221 million for uh, Nauru. Now, that's to be spent by the end of June on 120 refugees, which means $10,000 per person per day going to that company. Would you care to comment? Who's looking at that? <laughs> 
Oh. Uh, well, it, it didn't go to open tender. Um, no, we know that, right? We know that. And, and, but this comes to, to Cameron's point. Um, it didn't go to open tender, and the, the guy that did that is not ashamed of that, and his government's likely to win the next election. Okay, so I know it's not your fault, but that person sitting next to you is not taking democracy very seriously when... And this comes to the transparency point. Like, we know all this stuff, and they do it. Yeah. And, and the New South Wales Premier was recently involved in an outrageous sort of little grants program where 97% of the money went to coalition-held seats, and she just said, yeah, it's politics. Yeah. It's legal. It's legal. Yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. I'd like to think things aren't as bad as he suggested. I mean, purely hypothetical question, but if it was really that bad in quality of governance, wouldn't there be a risk we might finish up with the Commonwealth Attorney General, the nation's chief law officer, being somebody widely believed to have committed a major crime? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you walking away, Ian? <laughs> Love those rhetorical questions. Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll take that as a comment, Ian. Yeah, yeah, Jack, here, a broader question. Um, uh, James, I, I've browsed through your Games and Thrones and your metaphorical <laughs> James and your uh, working-class uh, Bruce, they reminded me of a, a, a pamphlet that was written 148 years ago by mm. Karl Marx, uh, the Communist Manifesto, a best-selling uh, book uh, throughout the ages. Um, interestingly, um, Barry Jones has just written a book called What Is To Be Done and he's to be congratulated that in his 86th year he put this book out, I think largely in response to the climate change crisis, but also the year of emergencies uh, we face, and I think he also um, has uh, been a bit more remote from the ALP. I don't think he has a lot of faith in them. But my question is this. Jones, in the book, we know he's the brain box of Australia. We know he's an open thinker. He mentions Karl Marx on pages six to eight, and He's opened his mind to a number of ideas by Marx, quotes one biographer of Marx saying that Marx's ideas could come back to significance quite uh, importantly in the 21st century, and mentions another book uh, by Cook, 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 I'll, I'll get there, Cook called The uh, Creative Genius. Does Marx have, and the concepts he raises about class and the like, have relevance in the 21st century and should it enter the mainstream debate more? Sure. Uh, look, to be honest, it's funny you mention that because um, you're the third person to tell me to read Karl Marx in the last two weeks, which is kind of totally random situation. But I have browsed and I, to be honest, I don't... I like a more to-the-point type of uh, material to read. Uh, Regardless, yeah, class is still important. I, I'm wary in general of um, picking battles unnecessarily, though, about ideals and, you know, is that neoliberalism or is that capitalism or is this socialism? I'm very wary about even um, using that terminology uh, to, to sort of help pick sides and decide what's to be done. I'm very much a fan of just... Um, issue by issue, what's the problem, how do we fix it, what do we want, and, and go to the next one. And, and yes, a lot of that these days is going to involve class and inequality, um, but I don't think, uh, you know, resurrecting, um, you know, old, old thinkers and philosophers is really necessary or um, is perhaps too loaded to make progress politically. Thanks. Yes, please. 
Um, these criticisms you've all been making of vast profits being made mm -hmm. from virtue of political networking, do you think um, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, would dismiss it as politics of envy? I think definitely yes. he, he would. Uh, it was just interesting, the, the aged care uh, report that came out you know, talks about the market and market failures and so on. There still is this neoliberal sort of yeah. d dominating uh, sort of philosophy to do with, you know, the market will prevail. It's treating people as the market, old people as a market rather than as people. There seems to be the wrong, for, just from my philosophical standpoint, the wrong approach altogether and this privatisation uh, of aged care when you had a look at some of the players behind it you know there's tax haven connections and there's there's all you know it seemed where, there, where there's government money buckets of government money there tend to be all sorts of rogues and vagabonds just to send on it in very short order um, let's go thank you um, going back to where you started with the Prime Minister's office and people who are advising the Prime Minister, I wonder quite specifically if you know anything about the behavioural economics team in the Prime Minister's office and if you don't, could you try to find out? And if you don't know the answer to that question, more generally, what would you like to comment on uh, the relationship between public servants and the consultants they use and the relationship between those consultants and vested interests of the kind they've been talking about. Excellent question. We'll pass to Marianne or Richard for that one. Well, yeah, beyond some of the obvious, I don't know the specifics of the team you talk about, but I certainly do know from having watched both the Prime Minister's office going back to Howard's day and the leader of the opposition's office, that there is, there, there is a real feeling of not only encouraging uh, people from, whether it's the Minerals Council or Crosby Texter or other big lobbyists to come in there, there's almost a concern, and I think this was the case in, at Malcolm Turnbull's, uh, during Malcolm Turnbull's time, that unless you get some of these figures who can be your bridge uh, to the Minerals Council or the mining industry into your office, then you leave yourself exposed to the right and exposed to particular powerful vested interests. So I think, you know, this is a real issue. And it, it brings me back to a rather, um, I guess, tragic interview I had with Bernie Fraser, who's a senior public servant for a long time, but I talked to him about his time heading the Climate Change Authority during um, Tony Abbott's era with Greg Hunt, and he, when Greg Hunt was Environment Minister, and he bluntly talked about the pressure that came back from the Prime Minister's office, and he bluntly talked to me about how he felt vested interests had triumphed over the national interest in climate change policy. And a, a number of those senior public servants, I can tell you, felt this really deeply. And when they put up cabinet propositions, 
that the minister didn't like. That is exactly when the outside public uh, outside consultants would kick in. You know, someone would, some minister who was around the cabinet table would call for the report from X or Y consultant to undermine all the work that had gone into the cabinet paper, you know, putting up what was a solid policy on climate change. Now, I can only believe this also happens in other areas of policy, but that is absolutely a process. And I think, sadly, what's happened, especially in the Morrison era, but long before that as well, is that public servants giving frank and fearless advice have been squeezed so hard, and I've spoken to them about this, that they feel it's incredibly difficult now to want to even aspire to be a senior public service servant in the federal system, giving advice that you feel comfortable with. Um, I know we're short on time. I agree with everything you just said, and there's plenty of them desperate for that job. And when was the last high-profile public servant who quit in disgust? Mm. When was the last one that said... Bernie Fraser. Well, no, but, like, well, they seriously. they don't promote those ones, do they? Where, no, but where are they? Yeah. Right, where are the ones that went, you know, enough is enough. Mm. I've been putting lipstick on this pig for years. Mm. No, you're laughing because it's never going to happen because mm -hmm. that's Australia. Yeah. All right, no-one is going to do it. They're all going to tell themselves that staying there and making a little incremental change is better. We yeah. haven't seen a senior public servant say, I'm sick of the ministerial pressure. I'm mm. sick of my department being blamed for giving money to their mates. I'm out. That's a joke. You haven't heard it at a state level or a federal level because that's who we are, not you, the person sitting next to you. Yeah. No, just, just quickly on that, um, I found... I. I created a computer game where I had students come in and form a little game of mates and cooperatively steal money off other students in the game that they'd never met before. And this was real money. They all loved finding a friend and stealing money off other people, $40 in an hour on average. 84% of groups, game of mates formed and they stole real money. That's great. And I, I tried to use that computer game to... to change the rules and see if I could stop it. But what was most interesting is that those players who, who had their relationships developed and were favouring their mates at the expense of others, when I surveyed them at the end of the experiment, they said they were doing the right thing, that's how you should behave. Um, they justified to themselves that this was the right behaviour. If I didn't do it, someone else would do a worse job than me at stealing money off other people. <laughs> and so that it only literally took them 40 minutes to switch from being an honest young university student coming into a computer lab to someone who's um, decided that uh, they're the best thief and they should have the job and that's the right thing to do. So don't underestimate how good we are at self-deception. If we're relying on, on ridding ourselves of cor corruption because people uh, know they're being corrupt or they know they're being deceptive or they know they're doing something wrong, I think that's going to fail because we're... we're best at fooling ourselves before we can fool others. Terrific. Thank you, Cameron. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Marianne. And thanks to everyone here and the, thanks, the Ghana thanks, people. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, thanks Michael. Thanks, Michael. Thank you.